This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure of introducing our very own Leanne Tortes with us. I'm really thrilled to be able to do this podcast with you, Leanne. I know it's a little uh, late because November was Native American Heritage Month, but better, <laughs> better late than never. So um, I'm really excited to do this and have this conversation with you just uh, to engage the audience and to learn more about um, Native American heritage, but more importantly, a little bit about your own heritage and a little bit about your background and happy to talk and share more um, around that. So if you don't mind, if you can introduce yourself to our listeners and share a little bit about your background and your tribe and your passion for working with the Native American population, that would be great. Yeah, great. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm super happy to be a part of this podcast. I know we've been talking about it for a while now, so <laughs> I agree, better late than never. Um, like you said, my name is Leanne. I am an evaluation associate at The Mark, and I've been with The Mark for about a year and a half now. Um, I am Native American. I am Deguino from the Epi Nation of San Isabel. Our reservation is located in East County, San Diego. Um, and yeah, you got it absolutely right. I have a huge passion for working with Native American communities and have been so fortunate to be a part of the mark and be able to do some of this work through our evaluation with um, Native American nonprofit organizations and working with underrepresented groups in STEM. So how large is your reservation? And can you tell us a little bit more about the communities or what it's like for a lot of us that don't know, like, and want to, are inquisitive and want to learn more and have the opportunity to ask you these questions, I think, in a safe and open environment. So I appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. So our reservation is very geographically isolated. Um, I think that's something that people have a misconception about is that they see some reservations and tribes and they see casinos and they're like Native Americans are rich. They have all this money. They get to go to college for free. Um, they receive huge checks each month. And the reality is, is that's true for a very small percentage of Native American tribes. There's about, I, I think it's a little bit over 550 federally recognized tribes, hmm. um, a lot of which still are on reservations today. But there are a lot of tribes that aren't federally recognized and don't receive any kind of funding at all. So we, I am from one that's very geographically isolated. We don't have a lot of money. Um, we have had some connections with larger tribes who have helped us out and helped to provide funds for um, us and, and programs and resources for the tribe. But otherwise, it's, um, you know, my 
my family lives in mobile homes. Um, it's very quiet. It's very peaceful. There's not a lot of tourists or attractions or not much to do there if you go there. <laughs> and can every, can people come freely on to the reservation or off the reservation or how does it work? Yeah, yeah. People um, can can drive through it and go there. Like I said, there's probably not there's not a whole lot to do, but they are by some larger cities. Like Julian is is a larger kind of city around there. Um, it's about I think like it's where apples come from. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they have a lot of like apple picking. They have like a, a pie company down there that's pretty famous. So there are a lot of tourists that go to that area and they'll pass through Santa Isabel as they go. And um, they have, you know, hunting season attracts some people as well. But otherwise, you're you're most likely driving through and just in view, enjoying the scenery and the view. So maybe to elaborate a little more, like what are some of the challenges that Native American communities have faced, including your own? I mean, as you noted I think if only 550 um, tribal groups are being acknowledged, right, Mm -hmm. at least at the federal government or just in government in general, um, there are a lot that are not being acknowledged or a lot that need assistance or help and what kind of assistance or help is needed and what challenges um, do they face? And I think it was interesting that you mentioned not to derail the conversation, but even recently I noticed even the whole like Hawaiians were more re- were just only recently acknowledged as a Native American group, which I found to be actually quite interesting because a lot of people travel to Hawaii and know about Hawaii, but didn't really acknowledge it as much as a Native American group, so to speak. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but a lot of it is just awareness and education and creating safety around asking these questions. And even, I know this is a conversation we're having right now that we're sharing with the public. And, but I think we need to create that, that safety and trust to ask hard questions and admit when we don't know. And I'm being truthful and saying, I don't know a whole lot. And that was one reason why we've had former conversations about wanting to do this podcast is to better inform and educate and be able to create that safety for others. So um, what are some of the challenges that are faced in not only more broadly across the Native American population, but even amongst your own community? Yeah, I think um, I think there are a lot of challenges that are inherent to Native American communities, particularly those that are tribal communities on the reservation. So, I mean, a lot of unfortunate problems with alcoholism, Um, a lot of health issues related to things like diabetes, suicide. And I think just the fact of being so geographically isolated, not Mm -hmm. having the exposure to higher education or role models, or, you know, it's just an unfortunate circle, I think, of um, something that it's hard to really get out of and to escape from. And we don't have, we meaning like the field of evaluation and us kind of off the reservation on the outside, don't have a lot of experience with working with these communities. And I think that we too often are trying to push our 
college and our statistics and our research methods on these communities and trying to force them to make meaning for something that is not meaningful to them. And that's been one of the largest challenges historically with Native American communities and researchers and evaluators. And that's actually true for many underrepresented groups, not just American Indians, but um, that lack of having that respect and that trust and that humility to be able to go in there. And like you said, ask them the questions, ask the questions about what is meaningful for you, having that appreciative inquiry and asking, um, you know, what do you hope to change? What do you hope the future looks like? What do you hope to get from the work that we're doing? And I think that's just so important and something that we as a field over the past decades have lacked doing and only are now recently starting to um, incorporate approaches that are indigenous centered. And do you think a lot of that's because there's been more evaluators of different nationalities or different cultures, including Native Americans? Or do you think it's just the acknowledgement across the field, which is understanding that the approach in the past has not, um, to your point, incorporated appreciative inquiry or created safety and trust around asking questions versus going in there and thinking you know how to approach something when you really don't? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think it's probably both. I think it's a little bit of people um, leaving their community and wanting to to serve their community, go back and serve their community. And I think it's us as a field just becoming more aware. And especially nowadays with everything going on, it, it's just more at the forefront of our minds about how are we going to be um, respectful? How are we going to be culturally intelligent with dealing with groups who are different from ourselves? So question for you, um, in terms of you know, demographics are in terms of movements, would you say that because even in your own family's community, have people, a lot of the next generation of kids, have they moved out of the reservation and off the reservation by nature of seeking education and other resources? Has there been that type of, um, for lack of a better description, trend going on? And so that also brings its own challenges because family is not as close or as locally geographically mm -hmm. um, tight knit. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, I know for us, like we definitely have had more of our youth graduate high school, go on to community colleges and even go on to four-year universities and, and higher education, which has been great because a lot of us have come back and tried to to give back and, and help and and the ties with your family are so, so close. So that is always, I think, something that's that's usually pretty consistent. Um, unfortunately, with other Native American communities who have casinos and are receiving a lot of money each month and are located in in very busy cities, um, there's there's no need to go on to get an education a lot of times because you mm. have all the money in the world. And I think in those particular situations, it's really hard to try and um, keep those, those cultural ties, I guess, that are, that are so important to the elders, but are not often as important to the children. Um, so I think it varies by community. I think it varies by, by tribe for sure. Um, 
Yeah. Now, is there a fear too of um, losing the cultural heritage of one's own personal tribe and otherwise just kind of being bucketed into like the nation, Native American like bucket, so to speak? And forgive me because I don't know how else to describe it. Is there a like concern or a fear of that because you're losing part of your cultural heritage or individuality to a certain extent when you just kind of get bucketed into? the Native American tribes in general, when there's so much diversity and like you said, differences between tribes aside from similarities as a people group, but there's also differences and um, there's a wealth of culture there by having that individuality. So is there a fear too of like, as generate, as individuals are aging, elders are passing on and there's kind of a changing of the different generations that, um, is there a fear that you'll lose some of that family heritage? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because it is um, for tribes that are very, very geographically close to each other, like around San Diego County, there's just like dozens and dozens of different tribes who all have their, their own dialect, their own way of saying words that may be very different from someone who's just, you know, 10 miles down the road from you. So it, you're right, there is a very distinct um, language, tradition, you know, beliefs in, in each of the tribes. And I think that, I think where the fear lies is losing the knowledge from the elders. Mm. Um, I have heard really sad stories about other tribes who, those that do have a lot of money that have kind of lost their way a little bit with the youth of elders who refuse to tell the stories. Mm. And who refuse to teach a language because they think that you don't deserve to know because, you know, whether you're, um, you're just, you're not respecting the culture. And so we're not going to teach it to you. And it's just so sad, you know, that that happens and that essentially dies because a lot of it is not written. It's mm -hmm. told in stories and in, in narrative. And if you lose that, then you really do lose it. You lose your roots. I, yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's where the fear, the fear really lies. So how do we overcome that? Like, is it as simple yet as effective as having permission to record those stories <laughs> and, you know, make those audios available to the next generation? Or is it deeper, which is, you know, the elders are not sharing those stories because they perceive a lack of respect, which is really mm -hmm. what I think it comes down to of the next generation that they feel like won't appreciate it or won't respect mm -hmm. it. So are we not teaching the next generation or even more broadly individuals outside of the immediate culture to respect and to be inquisitive and to want to learn? And it maybe through that, now you're transforming and changing a behavior to hopefully preserve it. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think you said a lot of good points. I think that it's important to have ownership for them, right? So for, as an example, in, um, with my grandmother, she's one of the last elders who speaks the language and she has, created books. She teaches classes. She um, has recordings. And I have seen really 
nice, beautiful partnerships with people who were from the outside and from a university who were studying, I'm not going to remember the word, but studying like speech and language who have come in and asked for to record her and asked to, to build this book. And I think it's important to build that partnership and have it be something that's really going to benefit the community, not just come in and record so that you can write your thesis or your dissertation and then you can graduate and go on and move on, but really have it be something that they can keep and they can have ownership of and be proud of, something that's accurate and something that they'll be able to pass down. Because I think oftentimes, you know, we want to preserve that. Mm -hmm. And we often don't have, like, we don't know how to do that. We don't have the systems or the recording equipment or the knowledge of how to do that. So it is really beneficial to build those partnerships, but it goes back to to the fact that those partnerships need to be respectful Mm -hmm. and they need to understand that the community and the people who are doing it, whether it be a researcher, an evaluator, really have to understand and do their due diligence to learn about the culture before they come in and try to to say, you know, this is how we're going to do it. But they really have to make sure that it's going to be meaningful for for both. Well, I think something you highlight, and I think I'm a firm believer of this, everything has to come from the heart first. And if you approach in the right way through one's heart, everything else will follow. So if you if you approach it too prescriptively, which I think is what you're describing, the intent may be good. Like the intent may be um, of heart, but the approach is not going to like go over too well. And, but as we're talking, like something that comes to mind is, you know, recent project that you worked on with SACNAS and as focused on bringing STEM, right? Oftentimes we think of STEM as science, technology, engineering, and math, and people need to go learn a whole new field and embrace technology and engineering to become these experts and go work to the next technology company or the next science company. But something that came to mind that could be as simple as application of STEM is really incorporating technology to maybe preserve culture, right? Like utilizing science and technology and engineer math in some way and incorporating it into um, culture and the preservation of that. And using it like what you're saying in the context of a people group or in in the context of a situation rather than trying to force it on individuals. And I think that is a really different way of approaching, but thinking about it, it's a different mindset. But I kind of like what you're saying, because that's literally what came to mind is we're trying to get certain populations to focus on STEM because we know it can provide greater livelihoods or higher wages mm-hmm. and for future generations. And it's not an entirely <laughs> bad thing, but what we've left out is really also acknowledging that those same tools can be used to preserve a culture or preserve people. And the conversation that we're having around elders and um, demographics and just the aging of populations and how do you still preserve one's heritage and yeah. so That's I appreciate such a fantastic like, point this focus on how can we approach things differently and especially um, I'm going to move us more towards like conversation as people are talking about equity and diversity mm-hmm. what does that mean for yourself or what does that mean for your community and just the community at, at large like as you hear people talking about equity and inclusion and diversity, what can that mean for your family and your community and, and 
in terms yeah. of the topic? Yeah, I think that it means um, having change that's meaningful. I think that's the most important piece of it. I, without kind of doing this work through this equity framework or lens, if you don't do that, then the results aren't going to be meaningful for the people that you're trying to serve. And that's really what all of our work is about, is we want to make that meaningful change. And the only way that we can do that is by really understanding who it is that we're working with and asking the questions and not assuming that we know all the answers. I think it's a really hard balance that some people, including myself, sometimes struggle with because we want to be an expert and we want to know and we want to have the go-to answer for everything. But really a part of this is acknowledging that I don't know the answer and I need to ask and I need to be open-minded and not just assume that this tool that I've used in, you know, a hundred other times before is going to work for this particular um community. So I think asking the questions is really important. And, and that's, that's what equity, I think, is where it starts, is being open. And I think acknowledging that, um, you know, we all have biases. Mm-hmm. And that's hard to admit that. And it can be a really difficult conversation. And it doesn't mean that we're horrible people. And it doesn't mean that we're racist. But we all have biases. Mm-hmm. And I think, the first, you know, one of the first steps to doing this work with this equity, you know, framework in mind is acknowledging those biases, because once we acknowledge them, then we're bringing them to the forefront of Mm -hmm. our minds. And once they're in the forefront, then we're able to say, okay, I see it. What are the assumptions that I'm making with the person, you know, about the person who's sitting in front of me? How is this impacting the analysis that I'm choosing to do or, Um, the inferences that I'm making about the findings. And I think, you know, that's, it's hard. It's really hard to do that. And, you know, you know, organizations are, are trying to push people into this direction of, you know, diversity trainings and helping and um, people acknowledge these biases. And it's, it's hard to do. It's not easy. And it's oftentimes, unfortunately, not very successful. Well, and I think what you're alluding to, and I know we've had this conversation, is how do you create safety and trust to have open dialogue, which can lead in and of itself to diverse conversations and equity because people can share their own personal experience, which is different from person to person. Even if you're the same ethnic group, the same gender, the same religious, each person as an individual has their own story to tell. And allowing people to share that story is where you create diversity of thought and inclusion because you're learning from other people and you're able to ask hard questions. I know I personally shared with you, I didn't want to put you under the microscope or make you a bug by us having this podcast, but I really (laughs) wanted to open up the dialogue. And because of our relationship working together, it was a safe environment to admit, like, I don't want to Mm -hmm. make you, you know, a token anything just because I'm, you know, interviewing you in the context of Native American heritage and understanding, but learning more about your community. But us having this conversation allows us to not only connect as human beings, but also for me and yourself, for us to learn from each other. And from that, we're challenging each other in terms of our thoughts and education and interactions. 
And hopefully through that, we're now changing our own, like you said, implicit biases, Mm -hmm. because we're now opening up a whole new dialogue of thought, which is really what those trainings should be trying to do. But because oftentimes they're very prescriptive, or they're very like, this is what you need to learn, boom, boom, boom. And this is how diversity should be approached. And this is what it's about. And this is the definition, like, we're getting away from like the ease at which it's actually not that hard to do to have diversity and inclusion if we're open minded to have conversations and be able to ask hard questions. Yeah. And I think I think that's the key. And and I you really nailed it. Like I think one of the the most um the biggest things that people complain about in regard to like diversity and inclusion trainings and organizations is that it feels like we're checking a box. And it feels like next week, no one's going to remember these conversations and nothing is going to change. No one's attitudes or perceptions or beliefs are going to change because we just did this one 30 minute training and that was it. And I think that, you know, I'm trained also as an organizational psychologist. So speaking a little bit from that side is that it's really, really important to create that culture within the organization to to be safe and open and to have um, to promote learning and have those conversations. And it really is top down. So there is that trickle down effect where if we see that our CEO and that our directors and our management are acting a certain way, they're asking the questions, they're open. I don't feel like I'm going to get punished. I don't feel like I'm going to get bullied or fired for asking a question that I didn't know the answer to. Then that's really about that safe environment. And that's going to open people up, like you said, to having those conversations. And I don't think to your point that it needs to be hard. I don't think, I think it is a really oftentimes a conversation about where do you come from and what was it like growing up for you and just listening and, and not listening to not respond, but just listening to learn. And I think that goes so far in companies that do that. And it really creates that that sense of family, I think, within a company that's really hard to create, especially nowadays being remote. Well, and I think humanity, the other piece that you're talking about is connectedness and humanity. We have to remember as people, we need to interact as people and their shared stories. Like I know as you're talking, I think about my own mom and she grew up in Hawaii. So my family's originally from Hawaii and a lot of the concerns and things that you're acknowledging are very similar in the sense that a lot of people move away from Hawaii to seek professional mm-hmm. gain, right? To education and they move away and they don't return, but there's an mm-hmm. aging population that is, that stayed in Hawaii, the elders have stayed and yet you're losing that connectiveness, right? You're losing that culture. And so um, through humanity, just by the nature that we're all human beings, they're shared connections. And we just have to remember that, like you said, that ability and that curiosity, that intellectual curiosity to ask a question and to learn from each other. By nature of doing that, we can create diversity and inclusion rather than be told what we need to do or to critically think about something, ask hard questions, ask yeah. the things that are hard to ask, like, where do you come from? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you like? What has your experience been growing up? I think those questions that are so simple are yet so hard to ask nowadays. You and I started yeah. this conversation before we started recording where I said, you asked me where my 
where my dad lives. And it stuck with me because you asked me yesterday, but I was analyzing it this morning because I realized that that's a really simple question. <laughs> and it's a really easy thing to ask where does someone live, but we don't ask that. Yeah. We don't ask right. that anymore. Yeah. It's so and true. Because we don't ask those things, we're not learning. And that's why we're doing a disservice to ourselves. So yeah. I, I really appreciate, I know this time has gone by really fast and I know I could talk with you hours on end, but I really appreciate you taking the time to share this with listeners, to hopefully encourage everyone to ask questions of people that you know, and not be afraid, even if you don't know, you don't know, but if you don't ask, you're never going to know. And so I think that's um, far worse than just, you know, having the courage to ask and it's okay, you don't know. I think that's really what yeah. we need to understand. And I'm really grateful that you're able to share about your family, your community, your passion for why, um, you know, you enjoy working with Native American populations. I'm just honored to work with you, Leanne, and and to be able to help um, what I, we always refer to as different people groups, but definitely it's around the whole topic of diversity, which we live and breathe. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate your time on this. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. And I look forward to continuing these conversations with you and the rest of our company and and everyone else. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating one million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven-module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, 
go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.